church to have a greater awareness of mental health needs, but also at the same time trying to reach out to the, the community and also the psychiatrists and mental health workers to raise the need of the, their patients when it comes to spiritual needs. Because at the moment, often you'll have the spiritual being seen as the church and the mental health being seen as by being the psychiatrists and the mental health professionals. And Mind and Soul is trying to so have a foot in both camps and trying to link the two and get them talking and raising awareness. And as part of that, we've had 10 seminars in this room throughout this week. And we also have in the Premier Pavilion an exhibition row from P51 to 59 with different ministries reaching out, showing emotional care, healing, mental health care, and all the rest and it's one of those times of trying to get people together to say, these are the resources. If you're facing challenges in your life or in your church, this is what's available. And it's been great having a range of seminars. And it's one of those times where, listening to the seminars during the week, I've had experts from different fields. And in one sense, I could introduce Hazel as being a qualified nurse, a qualified social worker. But actually, if anyone's seen her book, the book is... Beyond the Edge. Hazel is someone who's actually coming here today not with her professional hat on from the point of view of social work or nursing, but actually coming to talk to you because she has had real experience in her life of what it's like to suffer from depression and anxiety. And so today's talk, Beyond the Edge, helping others maintain their faith amidst the rough terrain of anxiety and depression, beyond the edge. I really am absolutely privileged to be able to welcome Hazel to come and join us and to speak to us today and to share from her personal experience and how the Lord has been with her and what she has really learnt through what has been a real challenging time. And she's actually shared that in this book. And I'd recommend the book to anyone. If you know someone who's suffering from a depressive or anxiety-type illness, whether you're going through it or whether you're a professional and you actually want to know what the insight is from the inside, let's give a warm welcome. Hazel, come and join me. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, first of all, can you hear me? Okay. No. <laughs> okay, is that any better? A little bit better. Um, please wave um, if you can't hear me. As you can probably... Uh, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> if you can't hear me very well, please, please wave. Um, my, my accent, I'm originally from Northern Ireland, and sometimes that's a blessing and sometimes that's a curse. <laughs> and you might not be able to hear, understand everything I say, so please just let me know and I'll um, slow down or repeat what I've said. Um, I'd like to thank Jonathan for the welcome and thank Mind and Soul for including me in um, their series of seminars this week. I've, it's a privilege for me to be here and thank CRE for also inviting me. And thank you very much for coming. Without you, there would be no seminar, so I really appreciate your support and that you've taken the time to come and hear um, what I'd like to share with you. Um, I'm fairly new to technology. I'm trying to catch up with the rest of the world. So um, we're giving it a go, PowerPoint, today and see how it goes. I might abandon it halfway through, but hopefully not. Um, 
But first of all, we've got the title here, Beyond the Edge. Um, I was lying in bed last night thinking, oh, that was a bit wordy, wasn't it? I could have written that, said that a little bit better. Maybe helping others hold on to God amidst the rough terrain of anxiety and depression. But really, that is what I'd like to talk about. Um, as Jonathan has said, um, I'll just go on to my own back. Um, my own background is that um, I am speaking um, largely from my own experience today, um, and also what I've learned and um, gained from other people around me since my own experience of what was quite a severe postnatal depression and an accompanying anxiety. Um, <clears throat> I seem to spend quite a lot of time um, naturally bumping into people and being alongside other friends who have had other similar experiences. So I'm talking really, I feel, as a lay person today. Um, I'm not trying to be too clever. I'm just trying to share some observations and some things that I find helpful, some things I didn't find helpful, and the same with some friends. Um, as I said, my background... Um, I did train as a general nurse about 25 years ago and it does feel like a former life but I'm told that it is this one feels like a long time ago um, and then for my sins I went into social work which is an interesting sidestep and I'm currently working in a school for deaf children as a relay signer so I'm a little bit of a, a mixture of, of everything um, I do have a blog. Some people will have my card. I'm afraid I didn't have enough for all the seats. I do have a little blog, um, which is www.mybeyondtheedge.com. It seems like it's been a bit of a morose blog recently because a number of my friends have been going through genuinely really difficult things. But in my blog, I try to do what I feel that the Lord has put in my heart, which is just to be an ordinary Christian who's trying to see God in the everyday. Um, and I hope that if you touched into my blog, that that's what you would see. Um, so I talk about the rough terrain. Um, I'm not sure today whether you're coming because you've had experience yourself or whether um, you know others around you, you want to help people. I thought I'd, we'd just look at a few statistics. I haven't got many today to look at. Um, one in four people will experience some kind of mental health problem in the course of a year. Mixed anxiety and depression is the most common mental disorder in Britain. <coughs> Women are more likely to be treated for a mental health problem than men. About 10% of children have a mental health problem at any one time. <coughs> Depression affects one in five older people living in the community and two in five living in care homes. British men are three times as likely as British women to die by suicide. The UK has one of the highest rates of self-harm in Europe at 400 per 100,000 of the population. And only one in ten prisoners do not have a mental health disorder. 
and I found those from the Mental Health Foundation on the web, oops, sorry, and that's the web address, but I think if you Google the Mental Health Foundation UK, it will come up. So I think those statistics, what they tell us is that, you know, anxiety and depression, mental illness affects people across the board. We're not just thinking about one person. I'm, it, I experienced it in my 30s, but it, it occurs in children, it occurs in older people. And really when we're looking at um, helping others within the church, we're not just thinking of one type of person. And that's quite a, an awesome thought. I mean, that's a bit scary. Where do we start? Um, and I don't have all the answers for that, but I've got a few suggestions today. Now, I've just realised I haven't taken my watch off, so I'm just going to do that because lunch I'm sure you'd all like to have, and uh, I could talk for the rest of the day probably. So I'll try and keep an eye on time. Now, arriving in rough terrain. I thought I would look at, you know, why do some people get anxious and depressed? Again, this isn't... Um, conclusive this isn't you know how every individual may arrive but these are some thoughts and I'm not really going to say much about them I think they speak for themselves there seems to be some evidence for some people that there's a genetic link um, that you know it's a kind of nature nurture argument are we born with a predisposition to anxiety and depression or to some mental illnesses or is it how we've been brought up? Is our social, does our social development determine what happens to us? And personally, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, my own experience, I think um, there's probably a genetic link in my own family, certainly towards anxiety. And my psychiatrist told me that my brain probably looks slightly different to other people's, which is quite nice for of them. That uh, um, you know, having an anxiety disorder as I do, that I, my brain is probably slightly different. So there's probably something you know fairly fundamentally physiological going on with some people. Um, but social development also plays a role. And growing up in Northern Ireland, as I said earlier, is a blessing and was a bit of a curse for me at times too. And growing up within the troubles. Um, where my father's um, business was blown up and seeing it through the eyes of a child actually was quite scary and I think it did welcome fear into my life at quite an early age. Um, Will spoke well yesterday on chemical imbalances and the physiology of worry so I don't know if you were here but if you weren't I'd recommend his a CD. Um, so I'm not going to say much about it, but there is something physiological often going on within our bodies when we suffer from anxiety and depression. Hormonal change. Again, in my understanding, it's not conclusive. People don't really understand the effect of hormones um, on our mood, but women certainly often know about post, um, or, you know, PMT and then also things like postnatal depression. I'm sure there's some kind of hormonal link, but we don't exactly know where <coughs> hormones are playing. At least I certainly don't exactly understand it. Uh, a bit of a clever word, cognitive processes, basically means our thinking styles. And again, Will talked about that yesterday, you know, about how we think, how we perceive our world affects our mood and I'm sure we're all aware of that. Um, so our thinking styles, again whether we've learnt them or whether we have a personality or a tendency towards them, all of these things can contribute to us becoming anxious or depressed. Life events. Um, this is a big one. Trauma, loss, financial pressures, illness and that's only a few. 
Um, recently, some friends of mine, you may have seen it on the news, um, a child was knocked over in Bristol just 10 days ago, and that's actually a couple from our church, actually from my home group. And, you know, I hope they don't suffer from anxiety and depression in the future, but to have your 11-year-old child go off to youth club and not come home um, is a big deal. It's a big life event. I'm sure I don't need to tell you here. And I think, you know, the thing I suppose want us to think about when we're thinking about these things is that, you know, people that come to us maybe um, with anxiety and depression may have good reason. You know, they may have actually suffered really big, painful things, and it's hard, and there's no quick fix. And, you know, this family, their child isn't going to come back. You know, and that's that's difficult. So, um, changes in society. You know, being a an Ulster lass and coming over here, I'm maybe quite aware of how hard it can be to move into a new society, to be on your own. And for me, being a new mum in a, in a new culture without my family around was quite hard. And I think the way our society has changed affects. It can be quite a lonely place. We can be a little nuclear family or on our own, feel very isolated. And our sense of community in, in many places is fragmented. And the final one is for no obvious reason at all. And I think I put that in because, you know, sometimes that's the way it is. You know, you look at some people we know and we might not, they just might not, or maybe this is someone here today, and you know, you feel you've got everything you want, you've got the life you want, you're on the medication that helps, you've got a good GP, everything's there, the family, but still you feel rotten. And I think that's just the way anxiety and depression is. Um, for some people, you know, hey, let's not explain it away too much, it just is. Um, I, I thought... I'd give you a little bit of um, experience into my own, or a little bit of insight into my own experience. Um, and being a bit of a talker, I thought maybe the best way to do this is to read a couple of pages from my book, and I hope you don't mind that. I'm not trying to sell it to you, although Daryl, my marketing uh, um, advisor for my VPs here, so um, maybe, no, I don't think he wants that. But it's just... I think for me, I guess I spent quite a lot of time trying to, to, to capture what it felt like. And if I tried to do that now, I probably could take the next 40 minutes, which we don't really have. So I'll just put the symptoms up for you. Very low mood, suicidal thoughts, despair, obsessional anxiety, sleeplessness, unable to eat, agitation, terror, difficulty in concentration and anger. Um, I'm not suggesting everybody has this. Um, and I suppose the other thing to say is, I, I guess maybe slightly differently from Will's talk yesterday when he was talking about worry, um, he was maybe talking more about um, an intrusive worry, but a worry that's not necessarily linked to a mental illness as such. And I think today I'm really talking more, when I'm talking about anxiety and depression, I'm not talking about you feeling a bit low someday, but the next day feeling a bit better. I'm talking about entering a state where it goes on for a minimum of two weeks, where every day you feel really awful. And it's really the people who whose lives are, are maybe 
brought to a standstill by anxiety and depression that I'm talking about today, and certainly that was my own experience. So if you don't mind, I hope it's not too upsetting at this time on a Friday morning to enter into uh, my depressive feelings, but I think it gives a little bit of an insight into the depth and just how harrowing it can be to experience this illness. Let's take a sip of water. Um, Okay. Uh, First of all, sorry to put this in context. So the situation, um, the place in the book in which I'm reading is I'd had my baby um, six months before. It was my first child. I'd had a miscarriage prior to having her. So she was a very much wanted baby. And I'd almost lost her. She almost died when she was 10 weeks old. And to me, that had made me feel like um, I had been hit on the head. Almost witnessing, almost losing her felt like a blow to the head. And I had this quite vivid image of, of being on a precipice and then this blow, this final blow of almost losing her thrust me over the precipice. And sort of I landed in this like disused quarry Um, which was rough and barren, and I sort of fell backwards, broken. Um, And it was following that experience about three months later um, is when I started to feel like what I'm about to describe. Um, Negativity seemed to run up from behind and overwhelm me. Before I knew it, I had moved from having some guilty feelings to a state of self-loathing and hatred. I have let Catherine and Steve down. I'm not worthy to be a mother. I am worse than all others. They would be much better off without me. Take an overdose, take an overdose. I still have the antidepressants that the doctor prescribed for me a few months ago. What would happen if I took them all? Would they kill me or would I survive in a vegetative state? Catherine won't miss me. Sure, she hardly knows me. She won't remember me if I go now. Steve can meet a more capable wife. They will both be better off without me. I felt very confused and afraid. Things had never felt this serious before. I'd previously taken pride in my ability to deal with anxiety and focus on positive thoughts amidst adversity, but nothing was clear anymore and I feared I would actually succumb to these negative voices. I could not rationalise them or control their frequency. I felt as if a huge magnet had been inserted into my head, which was now being pulled down by a negative force into a chaotic and rough place. I was marooned and powerless. The darkest of thoughts just ran amok through my mind. I felt mentally broken, as if I was crawling in rough terrain with my head bumping along the ground, bleeding and bruised, and I was unable to lift it up. Steve and Catherine seemed to be trying to rescue me from afar. Then despite being at rock bottom, I started to feel even worse. I developed extreme feelings of terror and agitation as I began to become obsessive about my fears. It's bad enough having lots of negative thoughts and feelings, but in my experience, when one negative thought becomes constant and repetitive, in conjunction with a low mood, life becomes unbearable. 
It was as if I was in a corner where a negative force kept repeatedly banging my head against the same rock until my captors arrived. To begin with, I thought I was just being silly when I found myself constantly worrying about a trivial matter of whether or not Catherine was smiling at me. I believed she was smiling at others, but withholding her positive response to me. Maybe she doesn't like my glasses. Or maybe somehow my face is unpleasant to her, I mused to myself. Maybe she can see something in me that she doesn't like. Strangely, at one level, I recognised this was ridiculous and could acknowledge that Catherine had been smiling at me normally for most of her life. But despite this awareness, I was totally consumed with the same thought and experienced a fearful adrenaline rush every time it came to mind. And as soon as Catherine smiled at me, I had to start all over again and seek the next positive response, and the next, and the next. I had never experienced anything like this, and realised that mentally... I was in deep trouble. Incredulous, I could not accept at this the most important time in my life I was falling apart. I'd always believed that I would rise to any occasion and that God would give me the strength to do so. Yet it was as if my mind had become an armed captor and was holding me hostage with a gun to my head, saying, Um, with a gun to my head, replaying the same lines from a scratched record, saying, listen to me, or lose your life. And I just wanted to read that with you, because I think when we're talking, I'm going to think about how to help people. I think it's good to have a little bit of understanding of how some people might be feeling. Um, The next thing is, you know, well, you know, we're Christians, we're talking about being part of a family. I mean, is faith faith important? I mean, is going to the GP not more important? Has medicine not got more to offer? And certainly I'd be the first person to say, yes, you know, take somebody straight to a doctor if they feel any of the kind of symptoms that I have described to you and take them to the doctor first. But pray for them while you take them. Um, Prayer and faith is very important. Um, And in my opinion, it can help refute despair. When I was in that place, despair came to me a bit later. Um, If you think that's despairing, you need to read on. And um, everything within me at that time wanted to listen to the voice, which said, you know, follow me. Oblivion's going to be better than this. Turn off these messages. You can't live like this. And... I really believe that it was my faith that sustained my life at that point because although I couldn't feel it, you know, God felt like he had abandoned me. I couldn't you know, feel him with me. I certainly had no sense of peace. Um, but my knowledge and memory of how God had been to me prior to my depression was still thankfully alive and well. Um, and I'd been a Christian for quite a long time and God had been gracious to me during that time and answered my prayers and had shown me that he was with me. So when I found myself having the, the voice of de- despair luring me to taking my own life, I did feel that my faith helped to refute that voice. I also believe that the church 
helped provide me with sustenance. Um, now, you might look at that and think, well, according to your book, it wasn't a very supportive community. And in some ways, that was true. I found it hard. But I also try to admit in the book that I wasn't probably a very easy person to come alongside because I was very broken, very angry, and very frightened. Um, but there were aspects of, of my church that really did sustain me. And I'll talk a bit about that later on. Um, I think that we have an opportunity that we can provide people with something really good and that is if we can try and be supportive if we can pray for them and I've written again it's a little bit wordy but guidance via theological framework but what I mean by that is you know the Bible's our map you know and it's trying to help us guide us through life it's trying to help us make sense of what it's all about and when you're depressed and anxious you know you're not exactly throwing the Bible to one side, but it can be very hard to sit down and make sense of it, particularly when you're in a very anxious state. Because I felt, you know, I was frightened to read, and I was frightened in case the Bible was going to say something and it was going to freak me out even more. So, you know, having people around who understand the Bible, who can make sense of suffering, have got something useful to say <laughs> that says it's okay to suffer, you know, that God's still with us when we're in these rough places is actually very supportive. Therefore, you know, I do think what we've got to offer is hope to people when they're feeling hopeless. Um, so that's, that's good. So how can we be church beyond the edge? And, and that's, um, you know, the, the subject that I've been offered today and that's what we're going to look at. Now, there's five different suggestions or, or just things that um, I suppose I would suggest you consider thinking about. Um, and uh, again, this may feel a little bit broad. I mean, how do you do this? Consider your role as a church is my first point. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, how do you want to help people? If you've come to the seminar, you're thinking, yeah, I'd like to help people maintain their faith. I'd like to help them stick with God when they're feeling really rotten, when they don't feel God, when they're feeling gripped by anxiety and despair. I suppose my question to you is, well, what do you feel your role is? Or what do you feel God's put in your heart? Do you want to try and do it all? Or do you feel there are certain aspects that you feel yourself that um, is, is what you, is on your heart. Whoops, sorry. Um, so, for example, do you want to help others by assisting them with their, their spiritual, their social, their physical, and their psychological needs? I mean, are you going for the, the full whammy, you know? Um, or do you feel there's, there's one or two things that you'd particularly like to do? And personally, I think, you know, we, we believe that God leads us and guides us, and it's okay not to try and do it all. I think as long as we're honest about what we can do and what we can't do, I think that's helpful. And I think even within a church, it's okay not to try and meet everybody's needs because we'll probably be burnt out very soon if we do try to. But I think as long as we're clear to people and say, look, I'm sorry, you know, we can't offer this, but I know in our our local community they do offer that then at least we're being clear excuse me while I take another drink of water and my own experience is there were a couple of things that I really did want from the church um, and possibly because of my background I didn't particularly expect or want the church to become my counsellors and to sort me out psychologically 
I could see that my own fractured mind was pretty complicated and I didn't actually will it on anybody. <laughs> I thought, you know, it's driving me mad. Um, so really what I wanted my church primarily to be was my family. Um, I didn't have my family locally. And as a family is honest <coughs> and can be fun and can be a bit in your face and can be, you know, practical... That's the kind of thing I wanted. I wanted someone to notice that I'd been crying all the way through the service and I'd come out with, you know, dripping mascara. I wanted someone to notice that, um, you know, or to acknowledge that I was struggling and not to pretend they hadn't seen it, like my brothers might have said to me when I was growing up. Um, you know, practical things like, you know, people maybe saying to you, oh, do you want to pop in for a cup of coffee? I didn't, I didn't want lots of planned, heavy commitments. I didn't know how I'd feel on a day-to-day basis, but the opportunity to pop in on someone for a cup of coffee, um, how you might be with your family. And I know we've, we all come from different perspectives and maybe our family's life will influence what we, we think that to be. But I suppose, as I said, for me, being a valued member of, of part of, of, of the church family was what I wanted um, in a kind of real down-to-earth, not-too-intense way. Um, the th- second thing I wanted from the church was to help me understand and connect with God. Um, and I suppose where I was, you know, uh, hopefully this doesn't happen to everybody, but it seemed what ha- seemed to happen to me was as I was entering depression, I also had a big argument with God. And I wouldn't advise putting the two together. But um, my own depression coming from this, witnessing this event, almost losing my daughter, really hit me very deeply. And I remember my daughter had a cardiac arrest in front of us when she was 10 weeks old in hospital. And my husband and I were there when it happened. And we were about to leave her. She had no monitors on. There was no other staff around. Had we not been with her, she may well have died. Um, And I remember when I came back with the nurse, because I noticed that her dummy had dropped out of her mouth um, uh, after some medication had been just administered to her. And we were um, still waiting just for a few minutes. And I noticed her dummy dropped out, and I suddenly thought, oh, you know, why has that happened? Her breathing looks different. And I came back and she was blue. She'd stopped breathing. And I, I almost immediately had just had this big argument with God. I remember looking up almost and, and saying, you know, I thought you knew me. I thought we had some kind of deal that you knew how much I could take in life. Therefore, I, I give you my life. I'm with you. You know, we're going it together. And you won't let me be pushed beyond what I can bear. And at that point, I felt that I had been pushed beyond my edge. And I was angry. And I, suddenly, at the time when you could say I needed God most, you know, there I was, angry with him. Whereas my good man, his attitude was, well, thank the Lord we're with her, you know. It's a bit of the, the glass half empty, half full thing. But for me, I was finding it quite hard to, you know, knew what was going on, and I did feel quite angry with God. So I was looking to my church, saying, well, you know, what is the deal? Suddenly, I'm, I'm quite fractured, quite vulnerable mentally, and I've got all these theological arguments at the same time. I was really looking, saying, well, you know, what, you know, 
what, what is suffering? Yes, I know we've been talking about it, but suddenly the whole issue of suffering meant something very deeply to me. Um, and I wanted them to help me connect with God. I felt very disconnected. You know, how could I have been a Christian for nearly 30 years? I, I, th- I never thought I'd lose a sense of his presence. You know, where's he gone? So those were the things that I really wanted from my church. Um, and the final thing was I, I wanted the opportunity to bring my desperation to him. Um, really what I would like to have done was to come into church and lie prostrate on the floor. But um, I don't know, you know, maybe that is possible in some of your churches. I think I might have been removed very quickly if I'd done that in ours. But, you know, if, you re- if we really believe that God can make a difference... And if we're really feeling desperate, you know, you want to get down and say, come on, Lord, you know, I need you here. I need, I need you to make a difference. And, you know, I was under psychiatric care um, some months later from the passage I've read to you. And I could really sense that even the psychiatrists were, were not very clear at what my prognosis was, how quickly I would recover, whether the medication would work. And I was thinking, well, you know, if you, if you don't know, what hope is there for me? And I, I really thought, well, you know, I believe God knows. You know, do I believe God's omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful or not? So, you know, I really wanted the church to help me. I wanted, you know, the, a parable of, of, of knocking for the loaf of bread and, and sort of the persistence of, of knocking. I wanted people in the church to start knocking on God's door for me and saying that don't forget Hazel Rolston you know she's still in a bit of a mess what are you doing about her so um, that's really what I wanted from my church you know I'm sure everybody's different so this is not prescriptive but this gives you a little bit of insight maybe to how you know I felt certainly okay so the first thing as I said I would suggest is consider your role as a church and what you feel led or not to to do for people um, that are suffering from anxiety and depression. The final top tip is try not to be a psychiatrist unless you are one. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I'm sure uh, Rob would probably agree with that. But I don't know. I think that probably says it all, doesn't it? I'll not go on anymore about that. Um, The next thing is... um, and I hope this, the, the simplicity of this isn't offensive because it's not meant to be, but have some intentional pastoral provision. And I imagine that, that most churches have. Um, but what I mean by intentional pastoral provision is that it's a little bit more organised than, oh, if they're in a home group, they're okay. It's nice to have someone who's allocated as somebody that it's okay to contact if you're feeling really rough. Because although you might be in a home group, is the home group leader good with people in emotional distress? You know, I think it's important not to assume that all home group leaders are good with people in emotional distress. We've all got our strengths and weaknesses. And personally, I think it's good to have some allocated people within our churches who, who are skilled, who, who know a bit about emotional distress and um, are willing to you know, be contacted if, if that's what they want to do. But... It, um, because basically, we do want to ensure that some people are visiting those that are, excuse the, the jargon again, but cut off in the rough terrain. Um, a friend of mine recently um, became depressed for the first time, and 
was a very regular church attender every week um, and hasn't been for five months and nobody's contacted him since. Um, nobody, I'm sure nobody's trying to be unkind, but, you know, is there not in some intentional path? Who's, who's, who's looking out for people? Um, and if it has been identified that someone's stopped going or they're ill, you know, whose responsibility is it? Um, I'm all for not burdening the pastor or the one or two people, but I think therefore that's why it needs to be structured, because if it's not structured, the one or two willing people end up doing it again and again and get burnt out. Um, So, for example, um, our own church is trying to start a befriending scheme um, where people are getting, you know, CRB checked and we're going through kind of the formal routes to make sure that and have some training and then they're going to be allocated um, people who would like a visitation. Um, I've sort of touched on this already, knowing your resources within the church. You know, are there people within the church who are psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors? Maybe they don't want to do anything like that informally, but you know, do you have a skill base? You have skill base within your church. Are there people within your church that really want to be involved in pastoral work? And you know, do you know who they are and have you talked to them about what they're able to give, what they're not able to give? I think it's just good to know, um, you know what your skill base is within your church. And also, I w- maybe would say also good to know the resources in your neighbouring area and outside of the church so that you don't feel, I've got to do it all. I've got to provide for this person. It's a really broken person or a very ill person. I've got to do it all for them. But if you know that, you know, within your city or within your local community, other churches are doing things, then, you know, why not try and do something different and then just let the person know that, you know, neighbouring church is doing such and such that you might be able to join in on. Advertise support opportunities clearly. Um, again, I apologise if this seems really simple. It is really simple, but... <laughs> It's surprising how simple things get overlooked sometimes. And if there are people that are in your church that, say, for example, would like to pray for people during the week, why not stick their name on a notice board um, or put them in a room for you know, a particular hour a week and say, um, you know, you can, you can have support in this way. I think it really makes a difference. And when, when you're feeling vulnerable, my experience is that when you feel really awful, you don't have the energy, it's really awful to have to say, oh, you know, who can I get support from? And it's embarrassing. And you might ask once, you might feel a little bit fobbed off. You, you might not ask the second time. Um, and I think it's easier if things are on notice boards or, or on uh, service sheets so that you don't have to say, yeah, yeah, I know I've been feeling like this for four years and I'm still feeling like it and I still need pastoral care, so can I ask someone again? You know, that gets really tedious and can really put you off, whereas if, like our GPs, we don't feel apologetic for visiting our GP. We know where they are. We know what's available. It's a service. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can make our pastoral care services like that, that we're not apologetic, we, we, we let people know what's there, then that helps. I mean, not everybody in saying that with depression or anxiety will be motivated to access them themselves and they may need a little bit of encouragement and they may need sort of someone to suggest taking them to things but um, signposting is is a helpful thing. Uh, Just a 
A basic but important point. Um, you know, let's try and make everything we do accessible to people. Um, let's think about language. Let's think about um, accessibility for wheelchairs. Um, let's think about large print, braille, whatever we need. Um, as, as you know, I'm working with deaf people. And um, having a, you know, quite a number of deaf friends, it, it's just opened my eyes out to how often they're <laughs> cut off from things. Um, so, for example, if there's somebody in your church who's fluent in French, who's maybe a native French from France, you know, why not let them set up something where they pray with people um, on a Tuesday evening in their, if, if others want to, to pray in French? You know, when, when we really have issues of the heart, we want to speak from the heart. And I, I think speaking in our primary language is an important thing. And, you know, I don't know if any of you have used interpreters, but it's not nice you know if you're feeling really rubbish and you're having to put it through an interpreter or if you're trying to articulate it in your second language it's not easy and it's not pleasant and you know within this country we may take it for granted that um if we're english speaking that you know english is the way to go but i think that um if we open our our minds out to making sure that our churches we are trying our best to make them accessible for everybody um, and just on the point of desperation, and I need to watch my time, um, you know, is desperation something you want to provide for? You know, we can't be on call for everybody 24-7, but have you thought about within your church, you know, is there a route or do you want to set a route up? You know, to me, desperation is just like having an acute pain. It's acute emotional pain. Um, and the hard thing with it is you can't plan it it doesn't let you know that it's going to come tomorrow morning it arrives unannounced unwelcome often and you've got to deal with it and sometimes you know what you need to do in desperation is go straight to a casualty and I've done that on a number of times with friends and maybe wish I'd done it for myself sometimes um but you know there are times that maybe within the church you know being available and providing for people that they know there are drop-in places, there are places, you know, if I can't get from Sunday to Sunday, there is somewhere on a Wednesday. I think that might be very helpful. Um, another little um, thing is just thinking about, do you have any follow-up from your prayer ministry? If you have a prayer ministry team, where have a church where people can come up on a Sunday morning, is there any accountability so, to follow those people up? And do you want that? Um, again, something I found quite difficult, you know, I'd, I'd go up, I mean, I, I enjoyed going up for prayer ministry, but you, you know, you think, goodness, dare I tell this poor soul who's just <laughs> put their hand up to be on the ministry team what I'm worrying about today. And then it's quite an empty feeling. You tell this person, you bring it to God. I might never look you straight in the eye again and then you think oh is it because of what I told them or is it just because that's the way the prayer ministry team works that we don't um, follow it up and I think it's something to consider you know how comfortable you are if you have do you want to follow it up because even things like just saying to someone who is quite um, vulnerable or ill saying to them do you know we've got a pastoral care team would you like me to pass your name on to them or would you like to speak to them it doesn't have to be tricky but I think that helps it makes you feel 
that there's a little bit more care than you've had your five minutes and you're off into the world. Prayer surgery, I've sort of touched on that. I um, haven't time to say much about it now, but it's kind of on my heart that churches start creating prayer surgeries. A um, friend of mine was struggling with um, alcoholism, and I was really inspired when I saw how AA provide for desperation. I don't know if any of you are aware of how many meetings, but within Bristol there is something like 15 to 20 meetings a day that people who are struggling with alcoholism can go to. And I remember my first reaction was, well, I wish I had had that, which, I'm, you know, I don't mean to say that tritely, but, you know, for someone that was really struggling, um, I felt I'd know where to go. Um, and I'd love it if churches could start having little prayer surges and we could collate, well, you know, one church has it on a Wednesday morning, one church has it on a Friday you know, if you're a Christian, you need prayer. This week, you can have it in five places. Um, so if desperation happens to pop up your way, you, you know where to go. So I'll leave that thought with you. Um, and just the final little obvious point that one type of pastoral care won't fit all. As you know, we've talked about the range of people. We've, you know, this is touching the surface. Children, people in care homes, people in prison, you know, it's about discernment, asking God to give us all wisdom to know what to do, really. Right, I've got about ten minutes for three more points, so I need to uh, keep moving. Um, consider how inclusive your church is to those with anxiety and depression. For example, your church services. Um, explicit theology of suffering, songs of lament, story of struggle. Um, what I mean by this is if, if within our church services we're not explicitly talking about suffering, it can make you feel like you're talking about something completely different. I whenever I became quite seriously depressed, I found it really um, very alienating when, I, when the services seemed very triumphalistic or... Um, you know, it was all going a great way. And I, I'd go and think, well, you know, what happened to me? You know, where did I go wrong? Did I take a wrong road? Have I done something wrong? How is it that the teaching and the things that are being said at the front don't seem to relate to my life? How is it that other people's lives seem to be good and mine's so broken? And I'm not suggesting that every Sunday services, um, you know, that we're preaching certainly um, or teaching suffering... But things like just if we're talking about um, someone being healed, that we just you know take thirty seconds to say, you know, but we're you know God still got His hand on those of us that are in the not yet. You know, it doesn't have to be much, but I think if we just need to acknowledge that in any given service and in any given place, we have people who have who are in a place of knowing the healing, knowing the restoration of God, and we've also got people who are in a place of not yet knowing it and feeling very maybe bemused and hurt. Um, songs of lament. Um, again, you, you know, this, these are sort of quite obvious, but you know, sometimes it's hard to sing some of the more buoyant songs. Um, you're thinking, well, God, I know you're good, but you know, why did you let something happen to me? Why did that happen? You know, and I think you know. The Psalms are full of, of rich text about lament. Um, so just in terms of our worship, again, it's good to, 
to consider that we include people who are in a bemusing place within our worship. Um, story of struggle, I, mean, I just think it's personally, I hope you find this too helpful sometimes to hear of people's struggles. Um, the church I went to when I was in this place particularly um, was a great church and, and you know, did lots of things very well. But one of the things I found difficult was that the, the stories, the interviews, often were alpha stories. So they were people that had become Christians and you know, were going on well. Um, and I found that very bemusing. Because I, you know, it seemed to be the message was, come to God and you'll be okay. And I would think, well, I've been with God and I'm not okay. So hang on a minute. Um, and then, of course, you know, since I've come through this and I've spoken to people and, I've, you know, I'm in a better place to embrace other things, you know, we know that that's not the full picture. And I just think it would be good within our churches to encourage more stories and process. You know, we're told that we won't see everything clearly now. We're told that we don't have it all now. So why are we so afraid to be in the um, not yet, you know, and I think that that doesn't underestimate our faith. We still know God is with us, even though we don't have all the answers. Um, Very briefly, um, just to consider, are your groups comfortable with people who are upset or questioning? Um, And... One of the groups I find very helpful myself was a mum's mother's Bible study group where they had a crash, and it was my only hour in the in the week where I could kindly hand over my cherished child to someone and cry without feeling embarrassed or feeling she was watching me, and you know pray with people and and just try and get a little bit of a God slot in my life and that was a real gift that our church gave me um, really recommend that if you would have the resources um, five years after you'd probably not be surprised um, my husband gradually got worn down by my stuff and our stuff and five years later he became depressed for quite a thankfully a brief period but we had no men's groups in our churches at that time and it's hard for men, I'm sure, you know, the men here have, have maybe many stories themselves or things they could contribute. Um, it's just worth considering having groups where men can also take, you know, the other side maybe or their own journeys through, um, through depression. Um, a mental health and faith support group, something I'm considering trying to look into. I think Mind and Soul ha- um, referenced some groups around England I think there's one in Leeds, isn't that right? Um, but, you know, maybe if there's a number of people within your church who are suffering from anxiety and depression, do they want to get together to pray and support each other? And finally, um, the Mind and Soul course that Will mentioned yesterday. Um, it's another thing that is designed to be inclusive, to, to embrace some of the stuff, some of the painful stuff in our lives, and I think it's definitely worth considering for your church. Okay, so that I'm not having to talk too quickly, I'll keep moving on. Um, Involve sufferers in the church life and its development. Um, I think sometimes, excuse me, I'll just take a little sip of water. Sometimes um, we can assume that people who are feeling quite broken or who are quite ill um, aren't able to do anything. And... 
I think that's not true. You know, I think that we've all got a lot more resource within us than maybe we can realise. Um, and I think that if we can involve people who are going through stuff within our church as much as possible and as much as able, that's a good thing because I think we've got a lot to learn from each other. Um, my kind vicar at the time, um, I went to him three years after my experience of sort of struggling with my depression. It was quite a few years for myself before I uh, felt well. I was still sort of not feeling great three years in and I, I went to him and I said, look, I've got to tell you, I've been finding it hard to be a Christian in your church. And I listed all the things that I've just mentioned to you. I find some of the services difficult and things. And he said to me, well, you know, what would help you? You know, what do you want? And I said, look, you know, I, I want to, I want to heal. I want to pray for healing. I want to, to bring my requests to God. But a Sunday morning, I don't have time. And then I don't have time to put myself back in together if I get upset and I've got, my, you know, my daughter around and I don't want her seeing me crying after the service. So we agreed that we'd have a, an evening service for healing. Um, and, I mean, I would have liked it every week, but, you know, fair enough. I think we had it um, once every few mo- a couple of months. But, you know, it was a, one I felt listened to, and it was a really affirming thing. You know, it had been quite difficult, and I felt a bit ashamed that I was going to, to my vicar and being a bit critical, maybe, saying things that I find hard. But it was a very affirming thing. I felt listened to, and I felt he'd taken on some of the, you know, many of the issues that I'd said. And also... It was very encouraging in a strange kind of way to see other people needing what I needed. And I, I remember the first time I saw other people crying at this service and going up for prayer and anointing of oil and thinking, well, where have you all been? <laughs> you know, I thought I was the only one crying for the last three years. And it was really helpful when we were, you know, that we were free for an evening to come and be and to bring our, um, our different sort of angst to God, really. Um, Yes, and on the same point, allow sufferers to lead and use their gifts within the church. Um, you know, things like, I mean, one of the things I would quite like to have done was maybe, you know, say prayers for, you know, maybe to get involved and pray for people who are depressed. You know, when you're feeling rotten, you think, well, I know, I could tug in prayer, you know. I know exactly what people need if they're, if they're depressed. So, you know, why not? Why not let have somebody who's, who is still feeling rotten but can pray into the place of other people within the church? Um, and I suppose just a little thought you know stigma linked to mental illness is still very prevalent and I do think that within our churches we have the opportunity to lead by example and and empower those who suffer and I think that's quite an exciting thought you know that we have an opportunity to do things differently to other parts of society and let's go for it um, my final point, and then there'll be a few, couple of minutes for questions, hopefully, um, is considering your own role. Um, we're called to be light bearers, not saviours. And this is something that I learnt rather painfully um, just at the end of last year when a good friend of mine committed suicide. Um, probably the person I felt closest to in my church who had welcomed me in when I'd moved three years ago but she also suffered from an acute anxiety and depression. Um, And a few days after she died, I just remember saying to the Lord, I feel like giving up. I feel like ripping the book up, Lord. It's all for nothing. You know, I've lost her. She's read it. Didn't help her, you know. What's, you know. And I really felt the Lord say to me, Hazel, 
You're not a saviour, you know. That's Jesus' job. You're called to bring light. And I think it's important that when we enter into this, it can be messy. It can be very painful. We're walking alongside people in, in, in difficult areas of their lives. And we may get injured ourselves. But if we remember what our role is, we're not saviours. And the message is a wonderful thing, I think, the, the, the Bible. And, and I love this, and I thought I would just... Um, put this last verse in closing remember our message is not about ourselves we're proclaiming Jesus Christ the master all we are is messengers errand runners from Jesus for you it started when God said light up the darkness and our lives filled with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ all bright and beautiful and that's from 2 Corinthians 4 verses 5 to 6 in the message and I think the challenge for us is to keep our own lives um, lit up with the, with the face of Christ all bright and beautiful and if we can do that um, and visit and be with people in their dark places then I think that um, that's all God is asking of us um, I'm afraid, I don't know, have we got a minute or two for a few questions if anybody would like yeah, we've got a mic here for, for questions. You touched on the subject of burnout. Yeah. To what extent is that a cause of anxiety and depression? And how would you say you would uh, help deal with it? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. Thank you. Um, don't know that I'm, I feel a little bit inadequate to answer that, and I'm not uh, an expert in this subject. But I think I do think that burnout or being, you know, um, emotionally drained or physically drained definitely is a precursor to an anxiety and depression. And I suppose how I would suggest anyone comes to terms with that, I think, is being honest. I mean, I think that's actually something I haven't said maybe as much about as I would like to within the seminar. I think it's really important that we are honest about who we are. Um, and if any of us are feeling burnt out and we're involved in pastoral care, I would suggest that we just be honest about that and take some time out. Um, because we're all human beings and we've all got to look after ourselves as well. So um, I think rest, time out, um, and trying to pace oneself and not trying to to save people but just to bring, bring light in, a, in the way in which we are equipped to do at the time thank you okay. any other questions yep. um, it's not so much just a question but an observation um, that quite often our vicars um, very often do fall prey to depression as well because mm -hmm. People think, you know, that they've got all the answers and yeah. they often haven't and we tend to forget just how much pressure that they come under. Absolutely. Um, I described it recently to a person that a vicar's a bit like an iceberg. Mm. What you see is only 10%. He can't actually share an awful lot sure. of what goes on. So if people can just remember to pray for their vicars. Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely I would agree with that. And I think 
that's you know why it's good that within our churches that we share it out because it's just unfair to expect you know the leader to do it all and and absolutely they'll get burnt out and yeah thank you for that First of all, I'd just like to say thank you for an excellent seminar. Um, you spoke from the heart, and it really touched my heart. It was a real blessing. Um, my question really is, it's probably not a question, but a statement. I think, speaking to people over the years that I have done, I think many people have um, taken the attitude that um, because I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Mm. You know, and it's really sort of given themselves a hard time, and it mm. has, has really given them an extra burden mm. uh, to have to deal with. And I think, you know, as Christians, we are human beings, loved by God. Mm. But I think also the difficulty with those people that take that attitude is that I shouldn't be feeling like this because I'm a Christian. So I shouldn't share this with my family, non-Christian family, Mm. because they'll only point at you and say, oh, you know, you're supposed to be a Christian. God's supposed to be looking Mm. after you. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think it's it's an interesting thought that we we do, you know, we are not to be, you know, of the world, but we are in the world. And we are to suffer with these things. And uh, by the grace of God, you know, he can deliver us. Absolutely. Yeah, well, definitely. I think... Sorry. Sorry, I could just respond to that saying that, yeah, you know, anxiety and depression is an illness like any other. So we don't expect ourselves to have a chest infection as a Christian. Then, you know, we shouldn't have anxiety and depression. But, you know, they're all illnesses. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, so I need to cut it there. Sure. I'm sure Hayes is going to be happy for you to come up and actually speak to her afterwards. Yeah. There's a little, I've got a book signing, actually, where you don't have to buy the book, but if you want to talk to me, I will be down in that area. I think I'm going there now. So. Okay, so let's say thank you to Hayes. She's shared from her heart. Come on. So go to the book signing, be very much part of that. I would strongly recommend the book. It's a book which is written from the heart, from her experience. And just, you know, if, you've, if, you've, if some of this has touched you and you actually want to find out more about what it's really like to go through what she's been through, read it. Truly read it because actually it takes you step by step going on a journey into depression and anxiety and actually coming out, out of it. And I would strongly recommend it to you. So, yes, go to the book signing. Also remember the rest of the Mind and Soul seminars here and the Mind and Soul Zone in the Premier Pavilion. Thank you for coming.